So I'm very, uh, very glad to have this opportunity to, to be with you and to share with you a lesson that, I, as I've been saying to Nathaniel in emails the last day or two, has really been evolving. When I first thought about what I was going to speak on um, when I came here today, I knew the passage of scripture that I wanted to speak on, and I thought I knew what I wanted to say about it. But the more that I've studied, the more what I wanted to say changed. Because the more my understanding of what's going on in that passage changed. And that's a good thing. Because it's as the, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in, in Hebrews the fourth chapter and the twelfth verse, the word of God is living and is active. And oftentimes we think of the Bible as though it were just another book. You know, it's just words on a page. But the, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that that's not true of God's word. That God's word is alive. And that every time we come to it, it has the potential to show us new things. Because we are different every time we come to it. You know, a passage that you've read a hundred times, when you come to it the hundred and first time, you're not the same person that you were all of those other times. Because you've had different experiences and you've learned things, you've grown in different ways. And when you come back to that passage, you can come to it, if you allow yourself to do that, with new eyes. And learn some things, understand some things perhaps you didn't understand, even though you've read that passage many, many times before. And that certainly happened to me with the passage that we're going to talk about this morning. Go ahead, Jay, and put the first slide up. Because we're going to look at a passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. The latter verses of that chapter are very familiar, I think, to most of us. Most of us, I think, have, have heard and read this passage of Scripture numerous times. You've heard lessons preached from the pulpit on it. You've heard this passage used at times to introduce the Lord's Supper. I know that you, you've heard that because I know I've used this passage for that purpose here over the years. But I want us to see this passage in a different way, and I'll explain why in just a moment. But before we get that, let's just look at this passage again as, as we normally have looked at it. First Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. Peter writes, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
Again, that's a passage that we are probably most of us very familiar with. We often refer to it as the, the example passage. Because it's, it talks about the example that Jesus set for us in facing his suffering without response, without retaliation. Even though he certainly had the power to respond, even though he had the power to retaliate, we see in this passage that he didn't. And we usually read this passage and we take from that the example of how to face suffering. But as I was looking at this passage and, and intending to talk about it this morning, it occurred to me to do what we often talk about. And that is to set the passage in context. That is to say, go back and see what led up to this. What did Peter say before this? Who, who's he writing to? What are the circumstances that he's addressing as he writes this? And again, what's the context? What does he say immediately before this example statement that would help us to really understand what he's trying to say when he cites this particular example by Christ. So to answer the first question we're going to go back to verse 11. We're going to go back earlier on in the passage and see sort of the beginning of this line of thought that brings us to the familiar part. Peter begins in verse 11 of chapter 2 by saying, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So verse 11 helps us to, to get a sense of who is Peter talking to here? Well, he, he addresses his audience as friends. But by friends, he doesn't just mean the list of people he's connected to on Facebook. He has a more specific context for that word than we sometimes use it in our modern vernacular. Going back to the very beginning of the letter, he's writing to a body of people that he refers to back in the first chapter and the first verse as God's elect. The same group of people he refers to in chapter 2 verse 5 as a spiritual house. Living stones, he says, built into a spiritual house. He calls that group of people in the second chapter in the ninth verse a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And in the next verse, verse 10, he refers to them as the people of God. So there's the, there's the answer to the question, who's Peter talking to when he writes that familiar bit at the end of chapter 2. He's talking to God's people. 
He's talking to those who belong to God in a very unique and special way. But he also addresses them as foreigners and exiles. And by that he doesn't mean two bands from the 80s. He means those whose citizenship is in heaven. Those who are not of this world, but whose place is elsewhere, whose place is with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a song we sing from time to time, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. When we sing that song, we are acknowledging that we are the people to whom Peter is writing when he talks about foreigners and exiles. We are of that people who are not of this world, whose citizenship is in heaven. As Paul would say in Philippians 3.20. And Peter contrasts that group of people, that people that belongs to God, whose citizenship is in heaven, he contrasts those with the group of people he calls pagans. And by pagans he means those who do not believe in the one true God. Those who worship idols or <coughs> perhaps <coughs> don't worship anything at all as they would think of worship. But instead are dedicated to their own desires and the fulfillment of the, the, the things of the flesh. Those who, unlike the people that Peter is writing to, are of this world. Who not only live in the world, but are of the world. In terms of their relationship with it. So now that we know who Peter's writing to, now that we understand the audience we can better understand the instruction that he gives in verse 12. Because having addressed these dear friends, these foreigners, these exiles, he warns them to abstain from sinful desires. That is to say, don't do what the people around you, the pagans, as he describes them, don't live like they live. But instead... He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If we really understand now who the audience is, these are the people of God, the people who are not of this world. Peter is telling them, here's how you evidence that. Here's how you carry forth your charge as foreigners and exiles, as a people who live in a world but are not of the world. Live in such a way that the people who are of the world, even though, he says, they accuse you of doing wrong, even though they reject the things that you do, they can't help but glorify God because 
of the good things that you're doing. And that's important because as Peter would go on to demonstrate, it's God's will that his people do good. He continues on there in verse 13 by saying, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. It is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. We're going to come back to that point in a bit. But hold on to that thought. It's God's will that his people do good and by doing good silence ignorance and foolishness. But notice now his next point. Verse 16. He says live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show respect and proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Live as free people. but also live as God's slaves. Those sound like contradictory statements, don't they? How can we on the one hand live as free people, but on the other hand live as slaves? Those two things don't go together. In fact, we look at that word slaves on the page, and we go, yeah, that's the thing I don't want to be. And particularly because of the history, specifically of enslavement of people in this country, we have a particularly negative cultural response to that word. <coughs> some of us, for some of it, it's a generational response. Because we had ancestors who were enslaved. And we see that word slave and we say, no, <laughs> no, no, that is not a thing I want to be or am going to be. We're on board with living as free people. We are not on board with living as slaves. But Peter says we have to do both of those things. Live as free people, he says, and how you do that is by living as slaves. Live as God's slaves, he says. And then in the next verse, he tells us four ways to do that. Number one, show proper respect to everyone. Now notice here that when we read those two verses, it almost sounds like those are two different thoughts. 
He says, live as God's slaves. Now he says, show proper respect to everyone. I want to challenge us to understand those are not two separate thoughts. Verse 17 is part of the same thought as verse 16. It's just, he's continuing on that same thought. Show proper respect to everyone is a manner in which we live as God's slaves. It's one of the ways we do that. As is, love the family of believers. That also is a way that we live as God's slaves. Fear God. Again, not fear in the sense of live in terror of God, but fear God in the sense of living before God, recognizing his power and his might and his majesty, honoring and revering him as our creator. Fear God. That's a way that we live as God's slaves. And honor the emperor. Also, one of the ways that we live as God's slaves. So in that 17th verse, having already said in verse 16, live as God's slaves, Peter says, here's four ways you can do that. Here are four ways that you carry out that principle of living as God's slaves. And if we really think about that, here's something that should occur to us. That as God's slaves, we are enslaved to everyone. As God's slaves, we are enslaved to everyone. Because who did Peter cover in that previous verse? Show proper respect to whom? Everyone. Love the family of believers. So, here's everyone. We have a responsibility to them. Here is a smaller everyone, the family of believers. We have a responsibility to them. Everyone includes everyone. That's why it's called everyone. By being God's slaves, we are enslaved to everyone. We have a responsibility to every person. We have a unique responsibility to those who are fellow believers. But we have a responsibility to everyone. And so here's a, here's a passage that I think that we often misunderstand. <coughs> because beginning at verse 18, Peter says... Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. We generally interpret that statement as though Peter is now specifically talking to people who are literal slaves in the physical world. That when he says slaves... He's talking to people who are enslaved to other human beings and who have literal masters who rule over them. 
That is not what Peter is talking about. Because that would be weird. If all of a sudden Peter is talking and has been for this entire letter to the entire body of people that he calls the people of God and all of a sudden now he's just going to talk to one very small subset of people who are in living in physical enslavement. That would be kind of strange. And I don't think that's what he's doing at all. Remember, he's already said live as God's slaves. He has branded all of us who are of God's people with that word. When he says in verse 18, slaves, he is still talking to all of us. He's not, he's, he hasn't just sort of gotten this weird idea, oh, I should probably talk to people who are literally enslaved, because there might be a couple of them who read this. That would be a strange way to write. And that's not what he's doing. He is talking to the people he's already called slaves. That is to say, the people of God. Dear friends, you foreigners and exiles, that's us. He says, you slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. And who did we learn in the previous two verses are our masters? Everyone. Because we have a responsibility of service to everyone. Submit yourselves to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Because here's the reality. Some people, when you do good for them, are going to spit in your face. Some people, when you try to reach out to them in service, are going to reject, are going to slap your hand. But Peter says, you still have a responsibility to serve those people. You have a responsibility to serve those who like it, <laughs> who, are, who respond in kind, but you also have a responsibility to serve those who react to that service with negative energy, those who are harsh. For it is commendable, he says, if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. If, somebody, if you try to do something good for someone and they spit in your face, that is unjust. You didn't deserve that. That's not the right thing to do. But Peter says... If you bear that, if you suffer unjustly because you, being conscious of God, are trying to do the right thing for somebody, 
Well, that's a good thing. But he says, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? Remember back here in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Don't let the pagans see you doing wrong. Because when you do that, you are destroying your service. It is to no credit to you if people respond to you negatively as a servant of God because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. There is no credit to you getting beaten up as a Christian because you are showing people the wrong thing of what a Christian is. And I'm going to say that again because I think that's the point that Peter's trying to make. It is not to your credit if you get beaten up as a Christian for showing people the wrong example of what a Christian is. But he says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. As Christians, we sometimes develop a persecution complex. That is not to say that we are not persecuted. In fact, Paul would say to Timothy, all those who desire to do right will suffer persecution. But what Peter is saying here is don't get persecuted because you're doing the wrong thing. And I think oftentimes, more often than we recognize we're doing it, that's what happens to us as Christians. That sometimes the persecution, as we think of it, that we are suffering for our faith is simply because we are showing people the wrong way of being Christians. When we get all high and mighty about our Christianity, when we develop that attitude that we know better and are better than the people that are not doing the things that we believe they should be doing, And when people get mad at us about that, 
There is no credit to us in suffering that hostility. Because as Peter said, you brought that on yourself. Because what you should be doing instead is doing good. As long as you're doing good, Peter says, if you suffer, that's a credit to you. But don't suffer because you're doing wrong. Even though you're doing wrong in the name of doing right. And I think we as Christians do that far more often than we want to admit that we do. Peter wants us to understand that all of us are slaves. Live as God's slaves, he says. And when he addresses those slaves in verse 18, he hasn't suddenly changed audiences in the middle of his spiel. He's not suddenly addressing a tiny subset of the people that he was already addressing. He's addressing us as God's people. We are enslaved to God. And that enslavement to God requires us to serve everyone. We can't serve people just who are good to us. We can't just serve people we think deserve our service. We are servants to everyone. There is no reward to us in only serving people we like. There is no reward to us in only serving people we would choose to serve anyway. We are servants to all. If we are God's slaves, we are enslaved to everyone. And now that we get that, let's look at the familiar part of this passage in a new light. Verse 21, For to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Just as Christ suffered for everyone, and indeed died for everyone because he was the servant of everyone we as his disciples are called upon to follow that same example to this you were called Jesus was God's slave you are slaves too. You have been called to this. And just as he suffered for you, you also should follow in his steps. Which again sheds new light on the next verse. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was not there for the purpose of rebuking or destroying. 
those who tortured him, who humiliated him, ultimately who murdered him. He was there to serve them by saving them. He was there to provide service because he was enslaved to God and therefore was enslaved to all to the degree that he gave his life for all. And the reason he didn't complain, the reason he didn't retaliate is because he was just doing his job. He was doing what he was sent to do. He was serving the people he had come to serve. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We, you and I, are among those to whom Jesus accepted enslavement. He made himself our servant because he was a slave of the Father. And because that enslavement required him to serve us, he sacrificed himself for us. And that sacrifice heals us. By his wounds, you have been healed. And because his sacrifice heals us, we also are called. For to this you have been called. We saw Peter say that, yes? We also have been called to be healers through our own sacrifice through our lives of service, we are called upon to heal as Jesus, through his sacrifice of service, has healed us. Isn't that what he said of himself? Mark chapter 9, verse 35, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of whom? Of all. And the very next chapter, Mark chapter 10, verses 35, 43 through 45, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of whom? Of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was the slave of the Father for our sake and because he was God's slave he became the slave of all
He could have come into the world and lived like the wealthiest of kings. But instead he came to serve. To be enslaved to our greatest need. Which is the salvation of our souls. The forgiveness of our sins. Reconciliation with our Father. And to be given the promise and hope of eternal life. He came to serve. And he served with everything that he had. We are slaves of God in Christ. And I know, again, as I've said, we hate that word. And we especially hate thinking about ourselves in the context of that word. But if we are Christians, if we are in Christ, we have no choice but to accept that branding. We are slaves of God in Christ. And being slaves of God makes us slaves to everyone. So the question then becomes, are we living such good lives that even the ungodly around us will glorify God because of our good deeds? I want to suggest again that sometimes I think as Christians we make that harder for them to do than it should be. We should be doing the kind of good that even people who say, you know, I don't believe in all that God stuff, but I will say this, those are good people. I don't believe in all that religion stuff, but I'll say this, those are some good people. Instead, what we often bring upon ourselves is, I don't believe in God, and there's why. Look at how those people are. Look at how self-righteous they are. Look at how they think they're better than everybody else. Look at how judgmental they are. Are we living our good in such a way that even the ungodly will glorify God because of it. And if we're not getting that, maybe it's our fault. Maybe we should rethink our approach to doing good. Do our lives silence ignorance and foolishness? Not by having a better argument, because too often that's how we approach it. Too often we want to silence ignorance and foolishness by shouting it down. We're not going to win that fight. Ignorance and foolishness are always going to be louder than we can yell. We silence ignorance and foolishness not by arguing with it. 
but simply by doing good. Simply by doing good. Are we servants who do those four things that God's slaves are supposed to do? Do we show genuine respect to everyone? Even people we think don't deserve our respect. Peter didn't say you have an out for people that you don't think deserve respect. He said respect everyone. Love the family of believers. And if you need a refresher course on what it means to love, go look at those middle verses of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. Where, Peter, where Paul describes in, in explicit detail what love is. <coughs> and he doesn't make it about emotion. One of the things we often miss <coughs> in 1 Corinthians 13 is Paul does not ever talk about love as an emotion. Everything he says about love is an action. Everything he says about love is what you do, not how you feel. Love is not how you feel about somebody. Love is how you treat someone. Do we truly love the family of believers? Because that's what God's slaves are supposed to do. Do we fear God? And again, not in the sense of living in terror of God. But in the sense of recognizing the power and the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God and living before him in recognition of those things as our creator. And do we honor those who rule over us even when we think they're stupid? And we probably often do. Even when we find them ridiculous. God will judge that. Our job is to honor. Yesterday I had the opportunity. If opportunity is the right word. To attend a memorial service for a. Dear brother in Christ, who had been a, a friend of, of our family for, for many, many, many years. We, we worshipped together for a number of years, a long, a long time before when, uh, when Kayla was first born, my daughter, um, his, his wife, and he um, cared for her um, for about a year until she was old enough to go to another daycare. Um, it was interesting to see the number of people who were at this memorial, many of whom were not fellow Christians. But all of them who had known this, this man, and nobody had a, had a, had a single negative thing to say about him. 
And that would make sense to you if you had known him. He was, he was, a, he was a difficult guy not to like. Because his entire life of interaction with people was about how could he make your life better? How could he serve you? How could he make things better for you? How could he help you? And it occurred to me and as, as I sat there and as I heard the, heard the various testimonials and I saw the, the, the things that, that people said in their, in their conversations afterward and so forth. That's the life that God wants all of us to live. I'm not Don's judge. I'm sure that he did some things that I don't know about that God had to forgive. But there was an individual whom even the ungodly looked at the goodness of his life and had to praise God because of it. Mark Twain is credited with saying, let us so live that when we come to die, even the undertaker will be sorry. I think Twain was, in a very secular way, describing what Peter is describing in 1 Peter chapter 2. Our lives before the world should be characterized by the good that we do to such degree that even people who despise what we believe in who reject it outright can't help but glorify God because of the goodness that they see in us in the way that we live our lives and the way that we serve others I'm challenging myself on the basis of this study to do better as a servant of God and do better in regard to that to my service to others and I hope that you take that same lesson away from this study this morning recognize that you're a slave to God let that enslavement make you a better slave of everyone that you meet.